Austrian pastor in the mid to late 19th century who simply said, do not think that any work God gives you to do in the world is too small, on too small a scale for you to do it. In layman's terms today, friends, that means you matter to God. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart as unto the Lord. Well, Brad has already mentioned it this morning, but we have several Very honored guests among us here at Trinity today, representatives from several local outreach organizations, and we are so privileged to have them here at Trinity today. By the way, it is Pentecost Sunday. Did you realize that? Uh, Some number of years ago, we decided that we would always take Pentecost Sunday to devote to missions. It is the birthday of the church, and the church exists to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ on mission. And so this year, uniquely, we have uh, roughly 10 local outreach organizations, including a number of our own ministries here at Trinity. I want to take a moment just to recognize them, ask them to stand as I, <clears throat> as I share their ministry and name first. We have Connected to Hope Rescue Mission, but really this is a new ministry called Lighthouse. Uh, we have Kate Alley. Would you stand, Kate? It's such a joy to have you with us today. We have uh, from Life's Choices Pregnancy Center of Kutztown and also in Hamburg, Joy Stutzman, who is in the, the Sanctuary Extension. You might have to look through the doors there to see Joy. We have Ms. Branda Bauer of Hope, uh, excuse me, of Hannah's Hope, uh, which is a, a ministry of shelter to women as well in the Reading area. Brenda, would you stand? And there she is. Welcome, Brenda. We have a, uh, from Faith Care of Reading, a, a newer ministry to our church, uh, Miss Melissa Phillips. Uh, would you stand, Melissa? Thank you so much. Uh, Osborne Buchanan, Gary and Deb Height uh, have uh, a role there with Faith Care. Our own unforgettable Tim Mills represents Gideon's International. Tim, are you in the building? Everybody knows what Tim's looked like. You don't need to stand. <laughs> you may not have known that Tim was a Gideon, though. We have our brother John Studenroth from Collegiate Outreach to Kutztown University. John is a fellow pastor in the BFC. Uh, Several years he pastored the Kutztown BFC Church and now seeks to minister the gospel to uh, staff and faculty at Kutztown. We have as well uh, uh, Miss Deb Ward of Operation Christmas Child. You know the little red and green shoe boxes each year, and so Deb is with us. You'll be able to visit with her in the Fellowship Hall. I think Jordan is here. I just catch his eyes. Jordan Eister, our own Jordan, is with Disciple Makers, again, formerly in Gettysburg. He's now back at Kutztown University, so it's good to have Jordan and his family with us. Our brother Kurt Cutler is here from Victory Valley Camp in Zionsville. Uh, You may not um, think of a children's camp as a local outreach, but um, tens of children, even maybe up to 100 100 children, uh, every year come to faith in Jesus Christ there at Victory Valley. And so we pray for Kurt. We're grateful to have him. And then a few ministries from our own church that we want to spotlight this year are uh, TBFC Food Pantry that's led by Donna Russell Smith and several others. If you volunteer in the food pantry, would you stand as well at at this time? And we also have uh, uh, Brother Art and Bill and, and, and their wives here with us this morning as well. Walt, excuse me. Thank you guys for being here. And then in the lobby, you'll see as well our TBFC three-on-three basketball outreach uh, that's headed up by Cecil Salee. And next to that will be our Awana ministry, which is also headed up by Cecil Salee, but his wife, Michelle, will be tending to that. And I think they are right over here. Everybody knows you guys, but please stand. 
Well, again, Brad mentioned it, but we do want you to stick around. Please do. And what an opportunity we have, and why are we doing this, but for several important purposes that you might visit with these folks to encourage them. They are missionaries locally, and they need to be encouraged just as we need to be challenged to be involved in mission. And maybe you want to grab some information from them about how you can pray for their ministries, how you can be a financial supporter for their ministries. And I'm sure that they would be happy to put you to work in their location. So find a way. There should be something that each of us, that each of us are doing on a weekly or biweekly basis to give away our faith in Jesus Christ. No one can do everything, but everybody can do something. And so this morning, we challenge you to take advantage of that. The Bible says in Romans 8, verse 28, and we know this, that God works all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Probably right now, our brother Mark Cryer is undergoing a second uh, bronchioscope uh, procedure. On Tuesday of this week, Kay and Mark optimistically met with a doctor at Lehigh Valley Hospital who thought uh, he might be able to uh, go in and discern what sort of problem has been uh, causing Mark to have really a, a chronic cough for virtually two years. With well, Friday morning, the procedure happened, and as they went in, they discovered uh, some very trouble, troublesome things. The tumor in his right lobe that had not shown up, and Mark's been dealing with cancer for, for now nine years, friends, nine years. Colon cancer, liver cancer, lung cancer in the last two years. During the procedure, they discovered some fluid that did not belong in his lung. It was coming from outside of the lung, which means there's some type of tear or opening in his esophagus. Unfortunately, there really aren't medical advances uh, to be able to correct that. There are some things they think they can do in certain cases to extend one's life. And so Mark is currently sedated. He, he is not conscious. I was with him yesterday for quite a bit. And Kay, of course, has been right by his side. Alexis and Brandon are right with him. Mark's parents are right with him. Nancy was with him yesterday. But we want to pray right now for Mark. Um, it is a, a grim and a glorious, glorious reality. When one of God's children comes to the crossroad of heaven and earth, it is grim because in our love for one another, we don't want to say goodbye. But when somebody pushes off of earth's shores, they see Jesus face to face. We want to pray that it would be to God's great honor to restore. I mean, if he could call Lazarus out of a tomb after three or four days, he can call Mark out of a bed after just a few hours. Well, we changed the banner. Sometimes it says God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. It's a win-win proposition for Mark. For us, if the Lord calls him home, it's sadness. But as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, we aren't like those who grieve a hopeless sort of grief. Grief. So would you join me in prayer? Our gracious God and Father, you are so good. We exalt and praise your holy and righteous name. 
Father, we would pray, as I've just been reflecting over the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll hear about that in just a few moments, that sweet statement of Jesus in Matthew 5 and verse 4, Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The Bible calls you the God of all comfort and the Father of all mercies who comforts us in any affliction. Not just that we might be comforted, that we might be able to comfort others, having felt and experienced the comfort of Almighty God. Lord, we need your touch this morning. Mark needs your touch this morning. We're so grateful there's not a place, not a distance, not even any sin that we could run into or commit or go through that would take us far from your reach. You're a God who pursues. You're a God who preserves. We thank you. We would pray for your Holy Spirit just to be so near to Kay and Alexis and Brandon this morning. They have a couple of challenges on their schedule today, Lord. In addition to what Mark is facing, would you give them peace and take away any anxiety over all of that, Lord? Just be so near to them. And we don't know, Lord, what your plans are exactly. And yet we know it is your plan to glorify all your children. It is your plan to rescue and receive all of your kids. And so, Lord, we are comforted in that great hope. And even that is motivation for what we will do next. As we try not simply to shove our grief down into our pockets and put on a brave face and keep preaching or keep listening, but we would say, Lord, here's my burden. I cast it upon you. I bring it to you, Lord. Teach me what it means that you're my all-sufficiency in the midst of my grief, the midst of my worry, the midst of my fretting, O Lord. May it be swallowed up in faith, all for your glory and for the joy of your Son, as we pray in his name and by the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Children, I have a little bit of bad news this morning. This is training for you. Uh, There is no junior or primary church this morning. I can't make any promises (laughs) about how long I'll go, but I hope that you will listen closely because Jesus has a word for you as well. Well, I hope you have your Bibles open there in Matthew 5. Because in Matthew 5... Verse 13, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said to his, listen, ordinary, largely unimpressive disciples. Not a real magnetic personality in the bunch, friends. So many years ago, he says this, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Keep that image in mind. And in the very next breath, in verses 14 to 16, Jesus continues saying, and this statement being preserved by divine providence for us today, He says to us 2,000 years later, Not only are you the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. How remarkable is this? That Jesus would say that to people like us, largely made of salt, 
and now by the gospel filled with light. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? Not so that you might be made much of, but so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Salt and light. The fact of the matter is, it is highly unlikely this morning that either of these two very vivid images, or rather I think these two interrelated identities more precisely, that of salt and light respectively, which the Lord gives here in Matthew chapter 5, will be quite unknown or unfamiliar to any of you. We all know what salt and light is. Unfortunately, or maybe rather fortunately for us, we live in a day and at a time when both salt and light can be had lickety-split. With the swipe of a debit card or just with the flip of a switch. And I'm grateful for that. I would not have made a very good frontier pilgrim. For those whom Jesus addressed, though, originally these first century folks would have known quite clearly both the scarcity and the preciousness of salt and of light in their day. In fact, the Roman historian Pliny is quoted as saying, nothing is more useful than salt and sunshine. An interesting statement, considering our context. To be sure, these active agents really for preservation and for revelation, for seasoning and for shining were vital to human existence, certainly in the ancient world. And I submit to you, they are just as vital in the world today. It's hard to imagine a world without either salt or light. Now, what's more, by way of just brief introduction to the background, this pair of powerful word pictures, that of real transformative gospel influence and impact on the one hand, and essential spiritual illumination and enlightenment on the other, they come to us in the all too familiar context of what is commonly called Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Who hasn't heard 10 or 15 sermons from this passage? And so we sometimes are tempted to check out when we come past these familiar words. Just in case any of you do need a little extra help getting your biblical bearings this morning, recognize that this particular section, Matthew 5, 13 to 16, is actually part of a larger sweeping section, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, which can be read in about 10 minutes, but don't get any ideas. If Jesus could preach in 10 minutes, why do I need to take half an hour? Friends, he didn't preach for 10 minutes only. We could talk about that if you want. Here, the Lord Jesus authoritatively challenges his followers and even our own present understanding concerning, and this is important, what authentic, God-honoring righteousness and goodness truly looks and sounds like in this world. In other words, how should Christians live and act in a non-Christian society. That's Sermon on the Mount 101. That's the key question before us today. 
As the late uh, pastor scholar Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, one of my favorite commentators, says the theme of the Sermon on the Mount is the nature of the kingdom of heaven and the kind of life required of those who desire to become a part of it. In other words, Jesus gives us the interpretive key to the entire Sermon on the Mount. And I got to admit, sometimes you might walk away from the Sermon on the Mount discouraged rather than encouraged if you miss what Jesus is saying. Matthew 5.20 is a very important verse, and it says this, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if you're feeling quite good about yourself today, religiously or spiritually, you need to consider who you're measuring your life up against. And if you're measuring against other people or you're measuring against other religious leaders, you are going to come up short. If your life is measured by the righteousness of Jesus, then that's the life that pleases God. That's really what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. Over the course of three incredible chapters, Jesus describes and demonstrates the degree to which his gospel must radically reorient and transform our lives from the inside out, not from the outside in. So much of religion throughout all centuries, but certainly today, is outside-in conformity rather than inside-out transformation. And Jesus challenges that. The summary of his sermon might simply be, if you want to change the world, we must be noticeably different from the world. You can either be a world changer or you can be a world pleaser, but you cannot be both at the same time. So Jesus' point is that radical faith in his kingdom makes a seismic impact upon us so that we can make a sizable impact on the world. He saved us to use us, and frankly, I want to be used up for his glory. Well, the million-dollar question then after that brief introduction is, how? How on earth are we as individual Christians, and I think maybe even more importantly, corporately and collectively as a small town church here in Blandon, Pennsylvania, how are we to make a detectable, discernible, and desirable difference for Christ today? Don't you want to know that? Are we just playing church, or do we want to make a difference as the church? Let me tell you, I think we're making a difference already, friends. Be encouraged. God is using you. Well, the answer to the question of how is given us uh, very plain and straightforward by Jesus Christ. We can, even we must, simply be salt and light for the glory and praise of Almighty God. I was listening to a podcast this week, and uh, it was a totally different context, but the, the speaker simply said, God has never promised to bless bigness, but He does promise to bless faithfulness. So whether it's a large ministry or a small church, whether you have a lot of skill or you're just one humble little person, give it all to God and He will uh, multiply it as like the loaves and the fishes. He wants to use us. I have three points this morning. Let's get right into them. The first is the church's influential purpose, which I think is what the salt is telling us. The church's influential purpose on earth is preservation. Preservation, this is the picture behind the salt. You are the salt of the earth. 
As Christians, we are called to be influencers in our society. Specifically, we are called to the work of preservation. Now, salt and light, as we all know, on a basic level, are simply two ordinary but indispensable, almost household items. Who of you does not have Morton salt at home or GE light bulbs just sitting around? We all have these items. But did you know that in Jesus' day, in the ancient world, Roman soldiers, we learn, were often paid in salt? That was their currency. Apparently, Bitcoin was not invented uh, at that time. Well, maybe this is where we get the expression, he or she wasn't even worth his salt. How many of you enjoy a good salad? How many of us should, en- should enjoy more good salads, right? Well, did you know that the English word salad actually comes from a Latin word, salata, which means salted? That's what a salad where it gets its name. This is because the original way to spice up one's boring vegetables was to add a little salt to the mix, the OG, Mrs. Dash, in the day. The word sauce, I learned this week, comes from a French word which also means salted. Mama's spaghetti sauce had a lot of salt in it. And then there's salami, which you guessed is a type of salted, delicious meat. Well, listen, there is clearly a sense in which we as Christians and as local churches are to be the flavor of heaven on earth. There's no doubt about it. Taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34, 8 says. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. There really ought to be nothing bland about a church in Blandon. Our lives as Jesus' followers are supposed to be, are supposed to stand out as savory, and as pleasing on account of God's grace to us. A couple of verses that we heard yesterday in our evangelism explosion training with Shibu Omen. Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech be always gracious. Notice, seasoned with salt. A little flavoring of faith. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And then Paul adds to that picture over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, where he says, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. What does the world, what whiff does the world catch when you walk by? Smell of life or the smell of death? Well, it's all about our faith. And so listen, the church really is to be the Savior's seasoning among a tasteless and intensely bitter world. Do we taste good as a church? But really, and I think the point here this morning is that our modern application of salt as a flavoring is really not what Jesus had in mind here. Rather, the key point behind this first word picture of Matthew 5.13 comes from the other primary use of salt in the ancient world, namely that of salt being used as a vital preservative. You see, more than being mere pleasant or tasty seasoning, salt in Jesus' day was used to keep food from rotting. Maytag and Frigidaire did not exist with the disciples, you know. 
Instead of refrigeration, people would eat their meat that they had either caught or killed fresh. Or perhaps they would cure the meat by encasing it in a salt substance for the purpose of storing it up or saving it for some time later. They didn't have grocery stores and these sorts of things in this day. You had to make scarce food stretch for long times, and salt was how you did it. This important salty substance would actively work and critically work to kill off the bacteria that would cause the flesh to to break down, maybe even quickly. The very life source that sustained people needed to be preserved. So similarly, church, Jesus says to us that his kingdom people, that's you and I as the church, his ordinary everyday people are the salt of the earth, and we would be, in some strange way, the active agents whose faith and whose very lives work to penetrate this decaying society and seek its transformation by the truth and power and grace of Jesus. In some way, the church holds back the forces of hell while the gospel advances for God's glory. One Puritan, Benjamin Keach, pointedly, poignantly said, A little salt seasons much meat. A little salt can go a long way. The saints of God, he says, and the faithful ministers of the gospel are a great blessing to the world. As the salt of the earth, we as God's people are to exert a holy influence of Christ-like righteousness and goodness upon a dying, decaying culture. In fact, just think about human history for a moment, or the history of the church for just a moment. It is full of incredible examples of godly Christians, primarily Christians, standing in the gap for the diseased and for the orphaned. The hospitals and the literacy centers and the education or universities, many of those in the United States or America were founded by Christians initially. Certainly they've had mission drift over the years, but they were founded and established by Christians. Think about all the work in adoption advocacy that continues to happen still today, or training and care for the homeless and the helpless, or for battered women, all sorts of issues and causes. The church has actually taken up the banner in society, and God has blessed it. I think of Samaritan's Purse today, who is one of the first organizations to show up when a disaster happens anywhere around the world. We have our own Samaritan's Purse. It's called Chris Merrick and Nelson Randolph in the Bible Fellowship Church. The North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention send relief. And, and you here who are today, our, our, our guests, you are salt in this society. Church, you are salt here in this society. As crazy as these days are, just imagine for a moment this world without the church. How bad would things be? Well, there's something we need to note here, and that is not only does Jesus say you're the salt, meaning you're the preservative more than the flavoring, but notice he also gives a sobering warning in the second half of verse 13. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, Jesus' audience would have instantly known what he was suggesting. 
I believe this, this in front of us is a warning against being purposeless or pointless, even saltless as the people of God. Have we lost our distinctiveness in the world? In the context of Jesus' sermon, he's saying essentially Christianity minus Christ-likeness equals worthlessness. You can espouse the faith, but if it's devoid of life, it's pointless. It can't transform. See, if we want to change the world, we must reflect the God, the character of God, and rely upon His power in the world if we want to be used of Him. One author said, the whole purpose of salt is to act like salt. Therefore, the whole purpose of the church is to act like the church. Dr. Albert Moeller said simply, Jesus' warning here is a warning against nominal Christianity. That phrase simply means being a Christian in name only. Look, every first-year chemistry student knows that the compound of table salt is 97% sodium chloride. I took high school chemistry two times to figure that out. The salt of Bible times, however, was a mixture of salt with other impurities and elements such as sand and small stony uh, pebbles. In fact, one source that I looked at suggested uh, that the salt likely referred to here by Christ came from one of two sources, either the Mediterranean Sea, just on the western coast of Israel, or the Dead Sea, more, more likely. And salt excavated from the Dead Sea would have been only about 15% sodium chloride, along with many other impurities and minerals, so that if that salt substance was not carefully itself preserved, cared for, protected, then very quickly this, and and moisture was allowed to access it, then this pure salt would leach out. That would go away. It would evaporate even, leaving only behind the worthless, pointless, uh, useless even substance of sand and stone behind. Literally good for nothing. It could not be made salty again. You couldn't revive its saltiness. It could no longer be used as a flavoring or especially as a preservative. The only thing one could do with it is simply throw it out on the street for people to trample over it. And Jesus says, you're my children. You're my people. Don't be this way. Don't lose your distinctiveness. Don't lose your purpose. Church, we need to know that the Bible says the present form of this world is in decay. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 31 says, this present world is passing away. Literally, it's rotting. 1 John 2, 17 declares, and this world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the question for us today is this, are we living a salty life? You know, every once in a while as I'm driving around town, trying to avoid Pastor Jerry on the streets, of course, (laughs) I'll come up at a stop sign or a stoplight and and I'll see a, a, a bumper sticker that says, salt life. Have you seen that bumper sticker? I had no idea. I, it, it didn't look um, appropriate the first time I, I looked at it. I'm like, okay, I want to avoid that person. But it says, salt life. And I, I looked it up. And this is a, a bumper sticker that refers to somebody who loves the ocean, who lives to, to sense the salt air. And really, it's expressing kind of a, a way of life. Well, what about our lives? Is there a a sign upon us that salt life, 
Not for the ocean that you can bathe in and then, and then dry off, but the ocean of God's grace. It is His glory and His goodness what we're seasoned with and what we're all about? Are we passionate about that? Because here's what a lot of Christians do. There are three strategies, very quickly, that a lot of Christians, to one of three strategies. One is isolation. I'm saved to be set apart from the world. I don't want to mix with the world at all. But if, strat- if, if isolation or avoidance is our strategy, how can we fulfill this mission? The other extreme, of course, is that of compromise or uh, accommodation, we might say. And that's to, to blur every line of distinction between ourselves and the world. I submit to you, we are neither to avoid or to accommodate the world, but rather we are to engage with the gospel and to seek to transform our society for the glory of Almighty God. Are we being salty believers? Well, we have to press on this morning. So influential is our first purpose. The second purpose, Jesus uh, tells us, second essential purpose and effect of Christians, especially, I think, for us corporately and collectively as a local church, is the church's illuminating purpose in the world, even that of revealing the glory of our triune God through the hope of the gospel. In other words, the church exists to reveal God's Son, to shine the light of Jesus in the world. I I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, every Christian is to become a little Christ. It's what Christian means. We are little Christ. That's the whole purpose of our salvation. On the one hand, we are to preserve. On the other hand, we are to reveal. And I think these are the purposes that Jesus has in mind in this context. You are the light of the world, but... Instead of getting a second warning, what does Jesus give us? He gives us a word of encouragement, a word of strengthening for our hearts. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You can't be hidden as believers if you're authentic believers. If you're not artificial light, you can't be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Those of you that are kids of the 1990s, right now you're going to be humming the tune to the newsboys, shine. Shine. Let them make them wonder what you got. Make them wish that they were not on the outside looking in. You guys know that song? Kids, you don't know this song. I'm too old at this point. Let, your, let it shine before all men. Let them see good works and then let them glorify the Lord. We actually went to Newsboys concerts back at Liberty back in the day. It was really cool. Well, the point is that as heavenly-minded, kingdom-motivated Christians, not only do we serve a salt-like purpose, highly influential, highly transformative purpose in society, but also... We also serve a purpose where we faithfully bear witness and testify to the truth and the grace of Jesus. We reflect the light of his life. Now, this is interesting to me. Here in Matthew 5, Jesus says, of course, you are the light of the world. But immediately, some of our minds are going to other places in the New Testament where Jesus says something very different. He says, I am and the light of the world. Which is it, Lord? 
Are we the light or are you the light of the world? Dr. Boyce in his commentary gives this uh, very beautiful illustration. He says, just as the moon has no source of light in within itself, but instead it humbly and obediently reflects the radiance of the glory of the sun, so too do we in the church purposefully and though imperfectly reflect the light of the gospel in the face of Jesus, who is himself the source of light and life for the world. We are merely moons. He alone is the sun. The church serves a key purpose, which is an illuminating purpose. Just imagine how dark this world would be if there weren't 300,000 churches in the United States alone. You see, the existence of light presupposes the existence of darkness. I often think about as I'm driving up uh, Fleetwood uh, Park Road through Fleetwood on the way to Topton, the very first time that I drove that road, just over six years ago at this point, and I saw this glowing mountain on the right-hand side of the road. I had no idea. I thought maybe I was seeing an illustration of a city set on a hill. And of course, what was I looking at? Clay, I was looking at your workplace, Decca. This place that's just a radiant place. Well, if those lights were not there, as large as Decca was, I would have very easily just driven right past it. Light draws attention. And our lives are to be living signs, drawing people to a living Savior. That's the sole purpose for why we're here. Now, the question here is, where did Jesus draw this analogy from for his disciples being the light of the world? I think they would have known where he was coming from. See, we're New Testament Christians, but we really ought to be whole Bible believers, right? See, Jesus' audience would have, I think, detected that Jesus is drawing from the prophet Isaiah. In fact, if you want a really good study of the Gospel of Matthew, have a copy of Isaiah open next to you. There are so many intersections and corollaries between Isaiah and Matthew. You see, in Matthew chapter 4, just a few verses earlier, Matthew 4, 14 and following, we read these words. It's actually a quote from Isaiah 7. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Verse 16, Matthew 4, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, just very quickly, Jesus is saying, all that you read about in Isaiah, it's pointing to me. I am the light of the world. But there's more. We come to see in Matthew's gospel in particular that Christ's disciples, the church even, would fulfill Israel's responsibility to be the light for the nations. Israel would reject Messiah Jesus. The church being made up both of Jew and Gentile would embrace this holy vocation of pointing to the victory of the cross. Isaiah 42, verses 5 to 9, then I submit to you, is the background behind Matthew 5, 14 to 16. Isaiah 42, verse 5 says, Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, 
who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness and I will take you by the hand and keep you. And notice God says, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners for the dungeon from the prison, those who sit in darkness I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth to you, I tell you of them. The church is embedded in Isaiah 42. That's us, friends. We are to be the light of the world. Not because we have some source of light in ourselves inherently, but we have it by the power of heaven. I think of what Paul testifies to. Think of Paul with me for for just a moment. As he testified before King Agrippa, think about the context of Acts 26, where we read this, and and I said, this is Paul's testimony here, I think it's the second testimony in Acts, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and as a witness to these things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul had experienced personally what he wrote of in Colossians 1.13, that he gloriously has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, a kingdom bursting with light. Are we radiant people reflecting a righteous son? The Apostle Peter, likewise, in his own inspired statement behind our righteousness, says in 1 Peter 2, 9 and following, But you, and you guys know this verse, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Oh, so that you can have it easy. Oh, so that you can be comfortable. No, that's not what Peter says. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter presses on. He says, Beloved, I urge you then as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that rot and decay your faith. Stay away from those which wage war against your soul. Rather, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, what? I think Peter's drawing from Matthew 5. They may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Is our life as a church ablaze with the beauty of Jesus? Well, we've seen an influential purpose of preservation and an illuminating purpose of revelation. Thirdly and finally, very briefly, we find the church's ultimate purpose, which is glorification. 
It is giving God praise that He alone deserves. Church, we exist for one ultimate eternity-altering purpose, and that is to give glory and honor to the Father, all through reliance and dependence upon the work of Jesus Christ. As Psalm 115.1 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. In verse 16, the Lord Jesus brings these threads of our salt-like and uh, work of preservation and our illuminating work of revelation together as he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Church, don't misunderstand me. We are not a church that preaches salvation by works. That is a false and damning gospel. It is not by works of righteousness that we have done, that we are saved. It is by the perfect work, sufficient work, the satisfying work of Christ alone that saves. And there is no statement after that. Christ alone saves. But in our salvation, as we grow up in our faith, we will do good works. There is no other alternative. It's not an option we will bear the fruit of the life of Jesus within us. Someone said that good works don't make you a Christian, but they sure do do reveal that you are one. So the question is, is our life bearing the evidence of good works and God's glory? I thought about this statement, and I'm so eager for us to mix with our local outreach Uh, friends that are here with us this morning because they're doing God's work in this community. Would our community miss us if one day we packed it up? Would, Would Blandon, would Fleetwood miss this church? Would they take notice that we were gone? I think that's a question that we ought to to really wrestle with. That we would leave an indelible imprint Not of you or me or our personalities, but of Christ behind us. And if we're doing that, friend, I don't think there's any danger of us ever packing up and moving out. God will bless and use this church for His glory. Because, just to close here, our goal is simply His glory. His purpose alone is our... Our purpose alone is His praise. We exist to serve as salt and light, which seasons the earth with God's goodness. And God has purposed to use Christians and Christian churches as His active agents of holy preservation and illumination. How and where are we doing this? Let's bow in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, again we thank You for just really what is a a very beautiful, even simple text. But oh, how hard we find it to walk in faithfulness to this text, Lord. And yet you've promised to make us faithful. You've promised to work in our lives by your Holy Spirit, Jesus himself praying and interceding for us, all for the praise and adoration of God the Father who is the great architect of our redemption. You have work for us now. Some of that work is life to life, disciple to disciple within the walls of the church, in the walls of our homes. But some of that work, Lord, is among 
those who don't know Jesus. Would you impress upon our hearts, expose uh, complacency and, and any false motive in us so that we would be your useful vessels. Get us out of the salt shaker, O Lord. Salt that's left in the salt shaker is not accomplishing its purpose. Pour us out that we might preserve this society in some way until Christ comes to rescue. And Lord, as well, I pray that you would let let the light of Jesus be so evident and radiant in us that we literally glow. I think of these summer seasons and and evenings by the, the fire pit and the glow sticks that kids will run around with. May we be those little glow sticks for Christ in our pockets of communities. Help us to do the good works you have ordained for us to do. And I pray for divine appointments to happen in the next hour with various local outreach uh, uh, missionaries with us today and our people at Trinity. Use us, Lord. Get us active for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.